Sunday, the 22nd of September. This is Monocle's House View with me, Georgina Godwin. Coming up, Saudi Arabia threatens to respond to oil attacks on its facilities. We'll assess the likelihood of a full-blown military conflict in the Middle East. Also ahead, my guests Steve Crawshaw and Elizabeth Braw will be discussing the nature of political protest in Russia. And tonight, the Emmys take place, prompting a wardrobe crisis for our own Carlotta Ribello in Los Angeles. Plus, we'll be having a good look through some of the day's meaty Sunday newspapers. Monocle House View starts now. Saudi Arabia's leaders have warned that they will respond with necessary measures to attacks on their oil facilities. Riyadh claims that Iran is behind last weekend's drone strikes, but this has been strenuously denied by the government in Tehran. Well, I'm joined in the studio by Steve Crawshaw, who is Policy and Advocacy Director at Freedom From Torture. He's also the author of numerous books on political protest. And by Elizabeth Braw, who leads the Modern Deterrence Programme at the Royal United Services Institute in London. Welcome both of you to the programme. Thanks for getting up early on a Sunday. It's, uh, it's great stuff. <laughs> um, Steve, I'm just going to ask you to move a little bit further this way to get you in front of the microphone. Uh, and so we can talk about these really big issues. I mean, Saudi Arabia is absolutely dominating uh, the news agenda. Elizabeth, your speciality is deterrence. Is that what Saudi Arabia is advocating? I'm not sure Saudi Arabia has a clear idea of what, what uh, it wants uh, to do to, to uh, prevent Iran from engaging in, in more actions of this type, which is uh, Iran says it, it wasn't responsible for the drone strike. Saudi Arabia said it, it was. But uh, the reality is somebody sent a drone that uh, essentially disabled um, uh, operations at, at this particular facility belonging to Saudi Aramco, which is a, a, an enormous oil company. And so the question is, if your country makes most of its money selling oil, <laughs> you do want to make sure that nobody uh, disables your your um, uh, oil installations. And uh, I, I don't think uh, Saudi Arabia has a clear plan, simply because it's not used to uh, military action. It buys enormous quantities of, of military kit, but it's essentially a way of buying influence in the world, frankly. It's not uh, particularly um, skilled or practiced or sophisticated uh, a military nation. So, Steve, how much support then can Saudi Arabia expect from its ally America, from whom it does buy a lot of these weapons? Well, traditionally, we've seen that Donald Trump takes... Uh, pragmatism, to use a polite word, to an absolutely extreme. I mean, he used the phrase recently of Saudis pay cash. Of, of that was his kind of... He, he has a very transactional approach to everything. He's lauded himself, of course, as this person who's going to solve all these problems by being the tough guy. What we've actually seen, and is entirely predictable, what we've actually seen is that many of the crises have got worse through his tough talking and then very erratic. He goes in every direction. He's Sadly, he, I mean, he really is somebody who has... I think lost the moral compass in in so many ways. It's often people, are, politicians, are accused of not having a moral compass, but they kind of tend to know where they're going. He absolutely doesn't. One small example, actually, for us at Freedom from Torture, a large example, but striking that it's had few headlines. He is just appointed to the most senior post, human rights post in the United States. Sorry, to nominated somebody who has a track record of supporting torture. That ought to be utterly, utterly unthinkable. That post has been held by key human rights people in the past. That's the kind of thing he doesn't care. And so there, of course, both Iran and Saudi Arabia are torturing states, as we well know in different contexts. Um, and 
that kind of voice of what America might say actually wanting the world to be a better place becomes in a sense totally absent, sadly. Yeah, Elizabeth. And it, uh, I think it raises the question of what military alliances are for. So if you're NATO, uh, you're a, a country that uh, has joined an alliance of like-minded nations, uh, countries that mostly believe in um, uh, uh, the, you know, good governance and, and liberal values and if uh, a country were to attack a NATO nation the other countries uh, then step in to defend it but to then uh, go take um, a step away from that uh, and say well if Saudi Arabia is attacked we the US may uh, respond on its behalf there is no military alliance uh, involving Saudi Arabia and the US they are allies uh, but there is no formal alliance they are just good trading partners and that and I think uh, what Steve just said uh, um, uh, Trump takes pr uh, pragmatism to an extent extreme degree when he says, oh, because they pay in cash and that creates a lot of jobs in the US, we'll step in and defend them from uh, if, or, or respond on their behalf uh, if they are attacked. Now, it doesn't seem like the US will uh, is willing to immediately step in. Uh, but but that was his reaction. And so what's the, what's the point of alliances mm -hmm. then if uh, all that counts is how much cash you, you spend in the US each year? And in terms of, I mean, his key personnel, I wonder who will replace John Bolton as National Security Advisor and if that appointment is going to make a big difference to, to the way that Saudi Arabia uh, or the way that the, the US interacts with Saudi Arabia. Bolton, of course, famous, famously hawkish. That's right. So I think uh, we were all celebrating when uh, John Bolton resigned or, or was uh, let go, uh, however you want to interpret uh, his departure, um, because he had been, even though I, th I think he personally may not be a bad person, but he was extremely hawkish about uh, US intervention abroad and, and was quite keen, it seemed, to go to war against Iran, which would have been uh, terrible for, for, for the whole world. Um, so we were, I think, all quite relieved when uh, when. He, um, it was announced that he would leave the White House. Now, Trump has nominated a, a new national security advisor, but I think it doesn't really matter who, who the new person is because Trump is his own national security advisor. He really only takes his own counsel and uh, at any time of the day or night. And so the national security advisor, I think, in effect... Uh, has to make policy up of whatever put Trump puts on Twitter. And the problem with John Bolton was that he had his own very strong convictions about <laughs> about the policy that the US should, uh, should pursue. And that was not in line with what Trump wanted. Mm. Now, of course, the United Nations General Assembly is meeting in New York this week. Uh, and the Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, says that he'll, he's going to present a plan for creating security in the Gulf in cooperation with other countries in the region. Uh, the UN, of course, is celebrating this, saying it's a great thing and, and you know, may, may peace prevail. But, uh, Steve, I mean, how realistic is that? I don't think it's really realistic at all, but it is a reminder that the Iranians are much more subtle at their department these days, especially in the past. They have sometimes been much less subtle, um, but are playing Trump beautifully, if you like, by sending out these different signals and, and have achieved what would have seemed just a few years ago kind of unthinkable of 
the leverage between the, the separating out of European governments and the US government used to be pretty much in lockstep. And when the Iran deal was being done, was very much in, in lockstep and, 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 and the pride in what it got there. In the meantime, the again, I hesitate on the word, but it, it's objectively true. The craziness of Trump's behavior has meant that many European governments are very hesitant and are eager to have those kind of more sensible conversations with Iran. So we'll see where all of that gets to. Mm. And of course, then everything that's going on in Israel, the uncertainties surrounding the elections there, I mean, that must be playing into it significantly, Elizabeth. That's right. And it's, um, yeah, the the Israeli elections have a uh, apparently been inconclusive yet again, or I shouldn't say yet again, a, a second time. And um, it was it was quite crude, I thought, that, that Netanyahu used his, uh, what Trump support of him as a very, um, well, he used it as an election uh, aid, really. And uh, it didn't help as much as he thought it would, it seems. And, and that's quite interesting. He apparently thought that, if, you know, if, he, if you essentially bring Trump support in uh, as, as, uh, as a factor in your favor, that's, that's sure to win, uh, to win you uh, a number of votes. But it didn't really. And neither did uh, his promise to uh, annex the West Bank, which uh, I thought was, was an even cruder mm. <laughs> uh, election ploy. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, the Israeli situation now is quite uncertain. And, and how that then uh, plays into the Israeli Saudi uh, Israeli Iranian uh, confrontation will be interesting to watch. And of course, there is this growing alliance between Saudi Arabia and uh, Israel, so quite unlikely, but clearly based on on their uh, mutual dislike or, or fear of Iran. Mm. So, I mean, for both of you, really, does the Saudi-Iran uh, situation have the potential to be a global spark point? I find it terrifying, not because there is a clear direction of what's going to happen, but precisely because you have somebody in the White House who doesn't really, not only does he not seem to care, but he genuinely doesn't seem to understand either the nature of what throwing certain things onto the fire, people's, how people will react, he misreads it completely, and he does think simply, if I shout louder, then everything will change. It's not that one ought to be soft in one's diplomacy, absolutely not. I think it's incredibly important, and again, wearing a human rights hat, it's it's striking how often governments have refused to speak truth to power for because of you know large business contracts and so on, and that's deeply unhelpful. But the fact is that he simply doesn't follow through on anything except where he suddenly decides to having watched something on Fox News or having had some bright idea at 5 a.m. And the detonation of sparks, um, I, 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 there's certainly a degree of uncertainty that we really haven't seen before. Elizabeth. In a sense, he and Dominic Cummings think alike. So, so their approach is to break existing institutions, existing norms, uh, and then they think they're going to come up with something much better. But uh, you, you can think that all you want, but it's these norms and institutions and, and conventions have been formed over decades by people who had uh, the, the you know who had quite noble intentions. Yes. Uh, these norms and institutions and, and um, conventions may not be perfect. The Iran deal certainly wasn't perfect, but um, it was a step forward. So to so to then just say, well, I'm going to break it and, and uh, let's see what, what, what we get instead is, is just incredibly dangerous. And to think as beyond that first step, apparently is something that, that uh, he doesn't countenance or he's not able to do. 
Well, let's turn to another disruptor in chief, and that's Vladimir Putin. Now, the Russian actor Pavel Ustinov has been freed from jail. He was sentenced to three and a half years behind bars after he was controversially accused of wounding a police officer. But Ustinov's case prompted protests from very unlikely supporters, including Orthodox priests. Uh, Steve Crawshaw and Elizabeth Brewer are still with me. Now, Steve, you're a, a specialist in, in peaceful protests. Can you describe what's been going on in Russia? It's really interesting. And Russia is a country close to my own heart. I mean, I, I studied there back in the Soviet Union days and I was there as a journalist which, watching the, the collapse of the Soviet Union itself and indeed was there when, when Putin came to power 20 years ago now. I think that's perhaps a key thing to remember. He has been there a long time. Mm and all that goes with it. The protests have kind of come and gone. Protests helped to end the Soviet Union in a way that I think Western politicians absolutely didn't, didn't predict or didn't understand. In recent years, we've often seen a lack of belief in where they can get, and we haven't had, op we haven't had inspiring opposition leaders broadly um, happening. But what we've seen in the past year, what we've seen in, in, in the past six months as well, is potentially a tipping point. I'm not sure if it is yet a tipping point, but that sense of like, really, none of this makes sense. And on the one hand, corruption has been a big theme over the years, which has really turned people against, but also a basic sense of fairness um, people don't like. And this example that you mentioned of the the actor, it's so interesting, if you have somebody who has kind of national respect in a different kind of way, you touch those, what we in a British context would call national treasures, uh, you, you touch those at your peril, basically, mm. and then you get other unlikely suspects coming in saying, no, 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 this, you know, enough, no further. What I think is very interesting, actually, for Russia is the fact that they have backed down. It's not the first retreat that we've seen. We've seen many more people on the street certainly protesting, in, but also a sense like, yeah, we can create the victories. And that's the moment that all authoritarian leaders fear. The moment if you've made one victory, then people think, aha, we might be able to get another one. You appear to be a loser rather than a winner. And that, of course, helps people to redouble their strength and yeah. conviction. Um, Elizabeth, in this, in this instance, uh, it would appear that Ustinov was a completely innocent bystander, though. That's right. And, and if I can just sort of backtrack a little bit to what, uh, what Steve was saying about uh, protests growing out of nowhere. So a case that's, that's close to my own heart is uh, the really uh, corresponding protests in, in East Germany. Uh, back in 1989, and uh, so I've, I've just written a book about uh, how the churches really uh, were uh, the crucial factor in uh, launching those protests and how the Stasi tried to undermine the church just to make sure that, that no protests grew out of churches because the, the protests started with a peace prayer meetings. Well, which government can say, well, you can't meet for peace prayer meetings? It would look ridiculous, right? Mm. And so then that grew into protests uh, that where people said we want more democracy well how can a protest uh, how can a government say uh, intervene against people who say they want uh, more democracy so it's it starts uh, very small with with very modest demands for example the release of this actor in east germany uh, you know uh, peace prayer meetings where uh, uh, well, obviously, the, object, the objective was to, to pray for world peace um, and or meeting to um, uh, support the environment. Well, which government can say, well, you can't support the environment? Uh, so it, that, it starts small and then it grows and then the government uh, loses control. And that's, I think, where the Russian government is right now. And that's where the East German government back in 1989 lost the plot when those uh, protests grew from that, that very initial small objective of uh, praying for 
peace until uh, they, they uh, essentially demanded reunification of Germany mm. and, and the fall of the government. And I think that's, yeah, Putin is obviously well aware of it because he was in East Germany watching the whole thing uh, 30 years ago. And so... I, uh, uh, the release of this actor may seem like a very small thing, but as Steve said, uh, it's uh, in the scheme of things, if the government steps down or th- steps back from its initial action, it, it risks um, uh, looking like it, 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 can be, uh, it can be brought down or at least uh, made to change its mind. You know what I think is interesting here to, is to also then bring in Hong Kong and see what's happening there yeah. and again with a with an historical look at Tiananmen Square and, yeah. and ask you Steve what's what's the difference then because you saw East Germany turning out well <coughs> uh, you're seeing Russia back down but on the other hand there's Tiananmen Square yeah. and then from my own experience Zimbabwe where exactly. there have been all of these yeah. protests yeah. and actually people just get killed and nothing changes yeah. Yeah. So what makes it's, the difference? It, it, it's super interesting. And everything Elizabeth has been saying, you've just been saying, I find just so interesting. So the epigraph quote that I used in my more recent book, Street Spirit and the protest, the Power of Protest and Mischief, the epigraph quote there was that famous meteorological quote about climate change of the flapping of one butterfly's wings can lead to a hurricane elsewhere. We see it in politics so often. You can't predict exactly what's going to do, but enough of those different butterflies in different ways, and that creates change. One of the most extraordinary evenings of my life was being what Elizabeth was just describing was in 30 years ago, pretty much next, next month, in a couple of weeks' time, the, October the 9th, 1989, in Leipzig, and I was just so privileged to have witnessed threat of doing exactly what Tiananmen had done just four months earlier. And people lost their fear that night to such an extent the regime retreated and a month later the Berlin Wall was down. There was an absolute direct correlation between that loss of fear and people had been until then again, as Elizabeth described, it was only a few dozen earlier that year, then a few hundred, then a few thousand. That was the night they were threatened with being killed. They said, if you threaten us, even more will come out. And I don't think we're at that moment in Russia at the moment, but Hong Kong is interesting as well, going back to how just a few years ago, people, there were commentators who said, oh, please, you know, these umbrella protests, little children going around and really what difference does it make? And you see nothing's happened. And actually, we're now seeing the second stage of that. Tiananmen is often seen, said, oh, this is kind of gone completely. Well, in some ways, and many Chinese, mainland Chinese, may not be really aware. It's been successfully buried in that sense. But you're definitely seeing that it's coming back to the haunt of the Chinese authorities 30 years on. Absolutely. Listen, uh, we must move on uh, because tonight the Emmys take place in Hollywood. Uh, Carlotta Ravello is our uh, acting Los Angeles bureau chief. She's going, but first she had to find something to wear. The Microsoft Theatre in downtown Los Angeles will roll out the red carpet to host the 71st Primetime Emmy Awards this weekend. And even though you won't see me on the other side of the lens, the occasion meant I too had to dust off my wardrobe. Attending a black tie event is never an easy task. Even less so if you've relocated to a city with a single suitcase composed mostly of summer clothes. The solution presented itself in the form of a small rent-a-dress boutique in West Culver City. Oh, you're going to the Emmys? Said one of the staff members. Don't take this one. Another lady is already wearing that to the awards. While I changed from a full-on gown into a designer jumpsuit, a young woman picked several outfits for a bachelorette party in Miami. 
She said that the bride had given her a detailed dress code. On the other side of the curtain, two friends chose something cute, and those are their words, not mine, to wear for a brunch. Even though we're all attending very different affairs, there was something quite gratifying in overhearing these anonymous interactions. Yes, I might be stuck in a dress I can't unzip with a trail of sequins following my every step, but for that brief moment, we were all in it together. In a city where so many fake it until they make it, there's probably no place more LA than the changing room of a dress rental shop. For Monocle in Los Angeles, I'm Carlotta Ribello. Thank you, Carlotta. We look forward to hearing all about it and also seeing the pictures of you in that sequined frock. Now, coming up next, we flick through the day's papers. Stay tuned. Tired of seeing the same few tedious tourist haunts? Well, the Monocle Travel Guide series has stopped off in 30-plus cities and counting in order to dispense advice on travelling like a local. From the finest spot in which to sip a cocktail with a contact, work up a sweat or take a dip, our comprehensive travel guide series are packed with tips, essays and tidbits for getting the very best from your destination. Monocle's travel guide series is published by Gestalten, the Monocle Travel Guide series. Cities are fun. Let's explore. It is 9.21 here in London. This is the Sunday View on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin. Elizabeth Braw and Steve Crawshaw are still with me. Now, I think we all remember a moment in British politics where the expenses scandal came out and uh, many people forced to resign or apologise for claiming expenses which uh, they were not actually due. Uh, one of them famously was a duck house. Uh, an MP uh, was, uh, was much ridiculed for having claimed for a duck house on his lake and it ended very badly for him. Fast forward from that to the Sunday Times today. Is this Boris Johnson's duck house moment? It's very, very clear that Johnson has been doing things that he should not have been doing involving expenses, in, involving government patronage, particularly when he was mayor of London. Steve, talk us through what's on the front page of the Sunday Times. Well, what we've got on the front page, and indeed across uh, two pages inside, is an extraordinary story um, to do with Boris Johnson when he was mayor of London. Um, his uh, relationship with a woman we shouldn't be surprised that there were um, close close friendships with with um, women which we we know there's, there's lots of that stuff in there since that's not the problem here because Boris Johnson has shrugged these things off what we see here though is the support that was given uh, to this woman in her various um, business initiatives where according to the Sunday Times version and, and you know all, with all of us as readers are getting this entirely secondhand I say with this has clearly gone through the lawyers with in some detail on its front page across two all of two inside pages the headline there on the inside one is the the prime minister his glamorous friend and their global trade trips and it's the trade trips which are key there and which appear to have paved the way in the description of the sunday times for um this woman and her company to then receive significant government grants there's also issues of in order to get those grants you need to be based in the uk and it's classic stuff you go to the house actually it was a rental house no longer rented by the people who had been living there who are now back in california so in other words, 
a series of very clear rules for obvious reasons are put in place for the mayor of London and for government ministers and all of those things. And basically what it really comes down to is Boris Johnson yet again appearing like Donald Trump that we were describing earlier to believe that the Trump's, the, the, the rules so, simply don't belong to him. So it's very difficult to know. We've seen so many occasions before where... Again, one hesitates over the word, but he has been shown to lie. I mean, he simply told things which were simply false and knowingly false. And his supporters have at some level not particularly cared in some mm. way because they feel that the, the bigger aim of he's doing what we need. And if you cut a few corners along the way, what does it matter? Whether this one will be in that same category or whether this will make yet more people uh, hesitate uh, who knows? Elizabeth, is this his duck house moment? How Teflon coated is he? It's, he seems to be uh, uh, nearly entirely covered by Teflon, uh, considering how many times he has uh, lied and, and engaged in other improprieties. I mean, starting back when he was a very young journalist and he was fired uh, from one of his early jobs for having lied and and then lied to his editor um, having made up a quote and then lied about it to his editor so but that doesn't seem to bother voters I would be interested however in what the legal community mm. makes of this case because it's this is not just a question of, sort of personal morality it's a question of potential corruption right uh, and that's something like uh, that Transparency International I'm sure will <laughs> will take a, cl a close look at because if you are in the position of dispersing government funds uh, those government funds obviously have to disp be dispersed to, to uh, the people who have, uh, well, who deserve them, who have a, uh, a clear case for, for what they're going to use them for. And it's it's not to be dispersed as, as personal favours to your close friends who you apparently go and visit in the afternoon in their apartments that, that include uh, a pole for pole dancing. So uh, it, it will be interesting. Maybe this woman whose uh, companies have uh, never been profitable, maybe she did have a clear business case for getting these funds, but I think uh, uh, the legal community and, and uh, people like... Um Transparency, Inter Transparency International's experts will be taking a close look at whether this was really uh, all about board. Now, Boris Johnson's uh, uneasy relationship with the truth is also under the spotlight with the Supreme Court, court uh, case hearing, which is we're expecting probably Tuesday this week. Yeah, this is one of the most <clears throat> dramatic cases that Britain has seen. I, I think it's fair to say I can't remember a time, well there has not been a time where Britons have been watching live coverage of what's been happening in the Supreme Court in Britain. The Supreme Court has seen this distant thing which makes arcane rulings about complicated cases some of them are important, some less and some might make it to the TV news that night but fundamentally what we've got here is the suggestion that he has lied in that wonderful British way, lied to the Queen has a particular resonance but what that means is lied to the country about this most important decision that could possibly be made about whether Britain, whether and how Britain needs to um, leave the European Union. And there is this strong suggestion, I love the way that all these different lawyers are reading the runes of interpreting exactly the questions that different judges have asked within the limited time they've had. And many lawyers have reached the conclusion which may or may not be correct, that the judges are going to be minded, in fact, to rule against the government. That has such explosive implications that, to be honest, it puts his potential corruption and other things into, into context still. Because what we're seeing from um, what Elizabeth mentioned earlier, Dominic Cummings, a kind of key advisor who hasn't even been a member of the Conservative Party, but is seen as pulling so many strings, 
is actually in such an extent not caring about rules that they've started publicly exploring that, yes, well, maybe the Supreme Court might rule against, but nonetheless, you would find ways of getting past the Supreme Court, something which... I think none of us could have predicted a few years ago that you could ever possibly have a prime minister or people speaking on behalf of the prime minister explaining why the Supreme Court didn't quite matter. That's a pretty extraordinary place to have got to. It really, really is. Uh, Elizabeth, we've only got a minute or so left, but I would just love a brief look at this uh, this story you found in Der Spiegel about YouTube. That's right. So uh, we all, well, we live in the gig economy, right? And so that has... Uh, well, it's changing, uh, to say, uh, to, to use a, a very weak word, it's changing the way uh, we organize ourselves. So labor, labor, um, organized labor, labor movements and so forth, uh, trade unions, they don't really apply if you work in the gig economy. And so now this is a new uh, initiative called uh, Fairtube uh, that is aiming to organize people who make their living uh, on YouTube, not as employees, but as, as content providers. To, to get uh, them fair pay. I think it's, it may not be successful, but it points to the, in, well, to the fundamental restructuring of the labour market that's going on with the gig economy. And what, what is fair pay if, if you make a living just on, on sort of individual gigs? How, how is the government supposed to regulate whether you're getting a you know, fair uh, fair income uh, so it's it's very very interesting so will we new have a new youtube uh, trade union maybe maybe indeed uh, elizabeth thank you very much indeed that's elizabeth brawl also many thanks to steve crawshaw and that's all for today our supervising producer was reese james our researcher was will higginbotham and our studio manager was max bauer i'm georgina godwin thank you for listening 